Hello, and welcome to this spring's Best of episode for Ithaca Now. I'm your host, News Director Jay Bradley. And I'm incoming News Director Himadri Seed. Thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, we bring you highlights of stories produced by WICB News reporters from this past spring. So far, 2021 has been a busy year, filled with a new president, vaccinations, police reform, a mixing of in-person and remote work, tough challenges at colleges, and many other changes in the country, state, and of course, the Ithaca area. Tonight's stories, some in part, some in full, and other fantastic pieces can be found individually on WICB.org, and I hope that you'll be able to check them out. Our reporters did some fantastic work over this last whole year, reporting on these issues and more. Up first, we'll be taking a look at the vaccine process. With about half of New York's population getting at least one dose, that still leaves millions of people having to get theirs. To illustrate the process, former news director Bridget Wright took listeners through her process getting her shots and how it felt. Over 12 million New Yorkers are now eligible for the coronavirus vaccine. That means if you're listening to this and haven't gotten your vaccination yet, you're likely eligible. Eligible groups include doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers, like at the start of the vaccination rollout. But now it includes anyone aged 30 and over, first responders, teachers, public transit workers, grocery store workers, public safety workers, and New Yorkers with certain underlying conditions. About a month ago, I became eligible. This was my experience. I was able to book an appointment as soon as I realized I was qualified. It was around midnight one Thursday night and there were appointments in Syracuse at the state fairgrounds. When getting my first dose, I'll admit, I was flooded with emotions, excitement, relief, and honestly, a little bit of fear. The thing is, I hate shots. I know I'm not alone in this, but I'm really scared of shots. My family never lets me forget how in elementary school, I was so terrified of getting a shot that I kicked a nurse. I will feel bad about that forever. And if that nurse is listening somehow, I am so sincerely sorry. But this was a shot I was, mostly, excited to get. While walking into the vaccination site, I had no idea what to expect. I was greeted by military officers taking everyone's temperatures. I then saw the sign that I would be receiving the Pfizer vaccine that day. A volunteer then asked if I had any symptoms, and then I was put in line to confirm my paperwork. After a maybe five minute wait, I showed a volunteer my ID and insurance card and was sent in line to get a shot. The line to get my shot was a little longer, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But then I was told to go to a table after waiting in line. Each table had a nurse and a volunteer. The nurse to administer the vaccine, a volunteer to type up your paperwork in the computer system. I spoke to the nurse who administered my first shot about how she was doing. She told me that she was on a string of multiple 12-hour days of administering vaccines. She wasn't even tired, she said, and that she was just happy to be there to help get as many people vaccinated as she could. And then she gave me my shot, and I was off after the 15-minute waiting period, of course. I didn't have any symptoms after that first shot. My second shot was scheduled automatically for two weeks later at the same site. Two of my roommates and I all had appointments for the same day when I had my second dose, so we took a little road trip up to Syracuse. Directions, start, head northwest, then turn right. We drove there, passing by Perry's ice cream trucks and signs saying balddivorcelawyer.com and ordained women priests, while talking about boy bands and 2000s pop music, occasionally announcing cows when we're driving past farms. How do you feel walking into getting Um, your first vaccine? I'm excited. I'm kind of nervous. I don't love shots, but from what I've heard, it's pretty much painless. So I'm excited to get it over with. 
We were in and out of the New York State Fairgrounds in less than a half an hour this time and only had to wait in two surprisingly quick lines. The attendant helping the nurse who administered my shot told me that there were 5,000 to 7,000 people getting vaccinated at that site alone every single day. He also told me that the day I went was a 7,000-person day, even with almost no wait at all. It seems like they've gotten down a pretty effective system. After this shot, it wasn't as easy as the first. I decided to record myself 24 hours after my first shot, and as you can tell, I was not feeling great. It's been 24 hours since my second COVID vaccine, and I'll be honest, I'm really not feeling good. I am currently laying in my bed recording this, feeling awful, um, slightly feverish, lots of like joint and muscle pain, and um, I have no energy to do anything, and Earlier, I was nauseous and still have no appetite. In 48 hours, I was feeling almost back to normal. Okay, it's now been 48 hours since my second dose of the COVID vaccine, and I am feeling so much better than I was feeling this time yesterday. I'm really thankful that it wasn't COVID and that it was my body fighting off COVID for good, hopefully. So... I'm really thankful for that and thankful that I don't feel as bad as I did yesterday. The CDC announced this week that all vaccinated people can travel without quarantining or getting a COVID-19 test if they are asymptomatic, unless stated otherwise by local officials. Vaccinated people are allowed to visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing and visit indoors with unvaccinated people from a single household who are at low risk for severe COVID-19 disease without wearing masks or physically distancing. Of course, there are still risks and we are still living amid a pandemic. The CDC still recommends that all vaccinated individuals proceed with caution and maintain all social distancing and mask wearing procedures while in public. So if you're vaccinated, maybe we can meet up for coffee or even high five. For WICB News, I'm Bridget Bright. New York State run mass vaccination sites are now accepting walk-in appointments and now all people 12 and older can get one. Continuing to look at stories from this last spring, a huge talking point on Ithaca College's campus throughout the year has been the academic program prioritization process at the school, resulting in the elimination of programs and, most notably, the elimination of 116 full-time equivalent faculty positions at the school. In a three-part series, graduating correspondent Madeline Lorene and I took a look at the plan, its causes, and the voices affected. Here, we spoke to faculty getting laid off from IC and what that means for them. On a campus quieted by a portion of the student body being remote and social distancing mandates, a sound heard all too often now is that of protest against the large number of faculty cuts being made by the college to meet what they call their strategic plan. I'm Himadri Sait. And I'm Madeline Lorene. And today, we will be hearing from some of the professors directly affected by this decision. This will be the first of a three-part series in which we will discuss the issue from the perspectives of different stakeholders within the Ithaca College community, faculty, students, alumni, and administration. Ithaca College is involved in the ongoing process of downsizing the school in an attempt to, quote, align the size of the faculty in right proportion to the size of the student body and our academic programs in right proportion to the student interest and need, end quote. In the words of David Maley, Director of Public Relations at Ithaca College's Office of College Communications. Maley responded to us when we contacted the president and provost for an interview and said in his email that the president and provost believe that the announcement they made on February 24th suffices for the comments on this topic and included links 
to a lot of the information the college has provided us in regards to faculty cuts, but more on that later. Today we bring our focus first to those whose livelihoods are being directly affected, faculty who have been at the college for years and have made contributions to the lives of the students at Ithaca College and the college itself, a place many had started to call home. My journey here started in 2005. Um, I moved here with my husband and our baby daughter, who was 10 months old at the time, in the middle of the winter. Um, and we were adventurous. Um, we were trying to make a new start on the East Coast and um, with his performing career and me um, doing a very backdoor entree into a teaching career at IC. That's Catherine Caldwell, Associate Professor of Psychology at Ithaca College. So I taught part-time um, for the first two years with my, uh, one of, and one of my primary goals there was to also be at home a lot with my daughter. Um, and th so that led to, after two years, um, I was offered a one-year appointment and then another and another and so forth. So I gradually, um, became more of a stable person at IC one year at a time. And that led to, I think the next step might've been a two-year contract and eventually a five-year contract. And so I just last year um, was renewed with a five-year contract, my second five-year contract. So I, I had every hope that I would be able to work through those five years and see what happened after that. Catherine did not get to complete her final five-year contract at IC. It was broken before the five years ended. I asked her if she knew when she signed the contract that it was possible for it to be broken. So the dean clarified that it's not a contract, so I call it that, but the dean clarified in our meeting that it's not a contract, it's a, I keep having, losing track of this word. There's another word for it that's less contractual. And it's so it's it's breakable. It's not a legally binding agreement, basically. With, and it says very clearly in the contract and always has that being um, coming back year to year is based on enrollment. There's definitely a clause in there that says, you know, enrollment, you know, contingent upon enrollment. So, um, you know, with the downturn of enrollment that was exacerbated by COVID, you know, I started to see some of the writing on the wall as early as last summer, I started to imagine that my job was becoming more vulnerable. Catherine knew that breaking the so-called contract was a possibility, but this news was a surprise to another professor I spoke with who was in a similar agreement with the school, who did not wish to be named. She feared for her job last fall when she was first told that it was possible that she would not be returning to the college in spring despite her one-year contract. She said, Until that conversation in the fall, I didn't know it was a possibility. I thought if I signed a contract, I'm secure. So to think that even signing a contract, and mind you, I was going to start looking for other work. And I was concerned about taking the one-year contract because if I said, well, what if I try to find another job? I don't want to break the contract. And I was told through the grapevine, don't worry about it. They break contracts all the time, which was news to me, so that was disappointing. She eventually ended up being called back for spring, but it came at a cost. She expressed that for many months, every time she would see her department chair's phone number in her phone, she would get nervous because she knew it was bad news. And when she finally found out that she would be returning for spring, she was told that her course load would be reduced, essentially reducing her income. After that, she finally received the news about a month ago that her contract won't be renewed another year and that she will have to go. She did, however, make it a point to emphasize how supportive her fellow staff members and her department chair had been through the journey. She said that there was an aspect of camaraderie among the faculty themselves that often missed the public eye in conversations about the issue, saying that she personally knew two professors, one at IC and one at Cornell, who accepted severance packages and decided to retire early so that other professors could keep working. Another example of faculty solidarity amid this upheaval, Sandra Steingraber, distinguished scholar in residence in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sciences at Ithaca College. 
She made the decision to voluntarily leave Ithaca College after learning about the layoffs of her fellow staff members. So I've been at Ithaca College for 18 years as a scholar in residence. And I, I guess the first thing I want to say is how grateful I am to Ithaca College, because these 18 years have really been the highlight of my academic life. I'm um, someone who never really decided what to do when I grew up, because I have a PhD in biology and a master's degree in poetry. So I don't really fit very well into any one academic department. A previous provost uh, in 2003 brought me here to Ithaca College with the idea being that I could show all my colors and um, work interdisciplinarily across the curriculum here. And it was at a time in Ithaca College's history when um, there was a real push to making Ithaca College be a transformational university, um, an institution of higher education for sustainability, which is where my work is really located. Uh, um, so it was a really good fit for me, uh, but now it's not anymore. <laughs> she said that's actually because of the austerity measures, which according to her, have had devastating effects on the work she planned to do here. I have been working on launching for Ithaca College a Center for Climate Justice and working with my um, fellow faculty members in, in, to envision what that place would be like, how we could operationalize it, what role it could serve on campus and getting lots of input. And then on that basis, um, you know, taking my proposal to a funder. And um, the good news is that I got that grant. Um, but in the meantime, um, most of the faculty that helped me develop it and would work with me in launching it have lost their jobs under the APP process. Uh, and, and that includes the two co-chairs of the Climate Action Group itself. Um, and so the sort of intellectual capacity that I was depending on um, to run the center is um, being devastated. Beyond losing the intellectual capital that would have helped her bring the Center for Climate Justice to reality, Steingraber also believes that the Center for Climate Justice at its core stands for justice, something she does not see happening at IC. The Climate Justice Center really centers the idea of justice, the idea that when our physical climate is destabilized, some people are hurt first and worst and more than others. Um, young people, uh, people of color, um, people in the global south and so on. And so um, to, to begin a, um, a big initiative that centers justice at an institution where I feel all around me signs of workplace injustice just became such a moral dilemma for me that I, um, I just needed to step away and move my work somewhere else and, and then be, um, use whatever power I have as a scientist in the public interest to show solidarity for my brothers and sisters here at Ithaca College who are losing their jobs in the time of, of a pandemic. So for, some, for many of my colleagues, this will be a career ending decision. Um, and I, it's one that I just disagree with strongly. I feel it's unjust and I feel that um, as much as the fiscal crisis we have here at Ithaca College is real, there are many other ways to address it that doesn't depend on so the sort of corporate model of treating people, people who have families and children and mortgages and student loans and aspirations to treat them just like disposable parts um, that are replaceable. And when you need to you know, make profits for your investors, you just toss away those disposable human parts. I mean, there, many of us became professors precisely to critique that model of the human condition. And so the corporatization that um, this budget and this process represents is something I just feel strongly that to, I need to stand up and speak out against. For more, the rest of the series and this full piece can be found on wicb.org. For more on the APP process, we recommend taking a look at the reporting done by the Ithacan, Ithaca College's student newspaper. But more happened on campus. After a semester and a half fully remote, students came back to IC, and that means things started to reopen, including bringing live music back. Correspondent Michael Memis heard what it was like for the Whalen School of Music to get back to the stage. 
Audiences return to performances at the Wayland School of Music at the beginning of this month for the first time since March of last year when the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the school and changed everything. While still not back to normal, having to limit capacity and restrict to those in the IC community, students were finally able to come back and play. I spoke to Eric Kibblesbeck, the Concerts and Facilities Manager at the School of Music, who has been in charge of this process. The seats that can be used are marked. We're keeping track of where everyone in the audience sits. People have to actually register for a seat as they come into the hall. All performers are using the agreed-upon PPE masks, bell covers, clarinet bags, whatever has been decided for that particular area. We blocked off the front, I think it's five rows, so that there's a little bit of additional space. Concerts need to go 30 minutes, take take a break, carry on after an intermission. So things are generally shorter than they have been. Certainly my sense is people are glad to be doing it even under these conditions. One of those who are glad is trumpet player Nate Oskowski, who had his first performance in front of an audience in nearly a year last Saturday for Jazz Ensemble. It felt like more than just a usual performance for him. I'd say prior to this year, a lot of the time, sometimes we put on a concert just to, just because that's what ex- is expected of us each semester, you know? At the end of each block, we put on a concert and that's it. But I feel like after going so long without it, I feel like that concert was more than just making music. It was like, it was about sharing music with other people. Instead of feeling more nervous with an audience, Oskowski felt more fueled by having people in the crowd. A similar sentiment was shared by Christian Labrie, a percussionist who performed last Saturday at a percussion ensemble. I don't know why, but I actually was way less nervous to perform in front of people than I had been previously. And to be fair, you know, the percussion ensemble concert didn't have a you know a huge turnout, a huge audience. You know, it was only a couple people. I just felt so much energy from being on stage with so many of my friends just to perform live again. I wasn't as nervous as I usually was. Oskowski and Labrie have both attended performances in Ford Hall as well and have enjoyed the experience. Although circumstances are different, the stage crew does a good job of adjusting, said Oskowski. If I'm being honest, there was definitely congestion leaving the concert, but I think, think that's just because for some people it's their first concert, so they're not used to the fact that they can't just exit wherever they want. The stage crew running the concert, they're very good at politely reminding people watching the concert, like, oh, this is an entrance only, so you can't exit this way, and they kindly usher them to the proper exits. Kibblesbeck says he is fortunate to have an amazing cruise, but has hung around some performances this semester to see how everything is going. Currently, Ford Hall is open with a maximum of 70 guests from the Ithaca College community, and Hockett Family Recital Hall has a maximum of 30 guests from the Ithaca College community. The general public cannot come to these events, but can still watch via live stream. Kibblesbeck doesn't believe that the number of people allowed in Ford or Hockett will expand, or that it will open to the general public this spring. What I've heard from Associate Dean Waltz and her interaction with the health and safety folks is that we shouldn't anticipate any changes at this time. I don't think we're going to be, I just don't think the campus as a whole is going to be allowing folks from the general public to come in this semester, and even including, you know, family or anything like that. That's, that's my understanding of where that is. But of course, if I get different directions, we'll change. But I would, I mean, speaking for myself, I'd be surprised if we're able to change much this semester. Oskowski, for one, is glad these current guidelines are in place. If I'm being honest, I I was worried that these concerts were going to go max capacity. If I'm being honest, like, we've been craving live music for so long, I thought it was going to be packed. But then when you actually get up on stage and, like, look out of the audience, it doesn't look that big because everyone's properly spaced out. So big shout out to our facilities manager, Eric Kibblesbeck, for really taking those guidelines seriously. Kibblesbeck is optimistic for the fall semester and beyond, but acknowledges that the COVID-19 situation is still unpredictable. Like I said, we're dealing with conditions that a year ago we never would have imagined, but they are so much better than last semester when we couldn't do anything in the building. That just all hope that everything continues to go well and we'll have fewer restrictions in the future. Whatever it looks like in the fall, the attitude towards performing in front of audiences and attending concerts has shifted in a more positive direction. Labrie says he is more appreciative of these opportunities after nearly a year of not being able to do them. Performing in person is is so exciting, and I really took it for granted before COVID. I would dread concerts sometimes. I'd just be like, ugh, you know, I gotta go do this thing tonight, and you know, it's taking up so much of my time that I could be spending doing schoolwork or watching Netflix or something. Now that's absolutely not the case. I really try to take every rehearsal, every performance for what it is now, and 
I definitely appreciate it a lot more. I myself have fond memories of concerts and recitals I have gone to in Whalen and look forward to seeing these world-class performances and performers in person sometime in the near future. It will be different from previous times, but in a good way. I will finally be able to see music with other people and won't be behind a computer or phone screen. For WICB News, I'm Michael Memes. This past year led to weird holidays. One of those was Valentine's Day. And for that day's Ithaca Now, I explored the different stories of young love that came to be during the pandemic. This full piece was about half an hour long, so if you enjoyed this part, make sure to check out the full thing on our website. Shannon and her boyfriend had been dating for almost two years. Most of that time, the relationship was long distance, and finally this year, she graduated. Her boyfriend was in the same town, and they were finally going to be able to be with each other. Except... My dad was an essential worker, so he was still, you know, having to, like, go out into the world because he works with ambulance dispatch. Um, and he ended up bringing it home, unfortunately. And when he tested positive, I had to tell my boyfriend that he tested positive. That was kind of the beginning of the strain that was put on our relationship. At that time, her boyfriend and her agreed to be distanced again. Just this time, only a short drive away. Until maybe this starts being more under control. And I was not happy about it, but, you know, I not like I could do anything. So I was just kind of like, all right. And then we started quarantining from each other. Shannon says she likes to have plans. That's what they'd usually do when they're long distance. Plan when they could see each other next. But now it wasn't that simple. It wasn't safe to just visit. And we both ended up getting COVID. She did end up transmitting it to him. And they went into quarantine. When it started, I figured that it wasn't going to be that bad because I was like, well, we've been long distance for our entire relationship. Like, it's not like this is anything new. But it felt different. We were finally in one place, literally living 10 minutes away from him. Yet I still can't see him, which was more frustrating than anything I've ever experienced, probably. Later, they were sure to be more cautious. We knew he didn't want to break up, so it was just kind of like trying to adjust to a new type of normal, but trying to do that together. Like with social distancing and everything we had both had, but I was still like almost like afraid to like come near him. I was like, because his sister also works in the medical field. So I was just like, it was almost like we were together, but we just like didn't know how to be together. We just didn't know like what to do, essentially. And in a way, like, it almost kind of felt like going off square one. I'm Jay Bradley, and today on WICB's Ithaca Now, in celebration of Valentine's Day, we'll be exploring romance, dating, and young love in the face of the coronavirus. How it's changed, how couples have adjusted, been strained, or brought closer together in the face of new challenges that change the whole landscape of relationships. The pandemic has changed many things, but one thing it hasn't is young people wanting to get together, to date, to meet new people. But the dangers attributed to that, say, going out to dinner with a stranger in a crowded restaurant, have turned what would normally be romantic into something anxious and risky. I made calls out to social media and friends to see what stories they had to tell about their experiences with love in the pandemic. For some people it worked out, for some people it didn't. Turns out, a lot of people were brought close together over the last few months. One girl from Cornell told me a story about her and her boyfriend broke up right before it all happened due to school pressures, but when Cornell started shutting down and people were sent away from campus, they opened up to each other, quarantined together from March till May, and fell in love. Two other friends I know from school I got to watch fall in love in a gaming group, never having even met before the pandemic started. Others are spending their time over Zoom and FaceTime, calling each other to stay in touch, while those who would have normally been seeking out dates and meeting people have had to make a lot of adjustments and tough choices. As in Montana, COVID didn't exist during the summer, except at the end. Charlie Winston, a senior at IC, had his whole life shift and change over the last two years. He took some time studying away from campus, going to London and then Los Angeles, using summers to do firefighting work in Montana. While up there in late spring, bars and restaurants were still open. And just by chance, he met Elise. 
we matched on Tinder, talked for a while, and then she ghosted me because she was shy. And then I got a tap on the shoulder at a bar, and it was her friend, and then her friend brought me over, and then we started chit-chatting, got her number. We just kind of started dating, and it was kind of like I was almost on borrowed time because I was on the I was doing fires and stuff. Um, so the relationship kind of accelerated really quickly. And then I was like, oh, you want to live together? And she was like, all right. And then she was like, no. But so then she was like, you can come with me on the road trip. I was like, okay. And then I moved to Chicago kind of accidentally, found a really cool spot. And then now just with COVID, we're both kind of just like holed up in my little apartment kind of accidentally living together. And it's kind of fun. Up to that point, he says a real steady relationship hadn't been something he found himself in before. But now he's living in Chicago, taking all of his classes remotely while she goes to college in the city. I saw Charlie turn around and he had two beers and he turned around and I like recognized him from the back of his head from his hair. I have good hair. And it was just like, like I was like very drunk and it was just like a spotlight on his face and everything else was black. And it was like, it was like a movie. It was like the Holy Grail. It was like, oh, I was like. I know that guy, so I had to look his name up on Tinder. Okay, I look my I look you up on I Tinder know. too, yeah. And I was like, Katya, that's this dude Charlie. Yeah. And so she was like, Charlie, come here. And then he, I and I thought was the, and then for context, I thought it was I thought I was gonna get bullied because her her not her friend her mutual friend was not very nice to me. She was kind of mean, and I thought I was gonna get made fun of for for my outfits because I like wearing really high shorts and really tall boots. I'm just wearing that downtown because it's comfy, you know? It's still like what I like wearing. Not good fashion. I thought it was great. But, uh, yeah, and then we met, and then I, I, I bought her a shot, and she was pretty hammered. Um, and I was like, it was so lovely meeting you, and then we just departed. And I think the next day we, we went to get pizza or something like that. No. No. Well, we got sushi. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We and then we and then we went on a date. And, we got and then he met my mom. Like, and, and, I'm, and I went to her mom's birthday. Showed up. <laughs> With a bottle of Jack Daniels, I'm like, happy birthday! The relationship came together very quickly. And once the pandemic hit, they had already made it official. Part of the reason they're still together is because of the pandemic. I've been able to just kind of leave Ithaca early. Ithaca was going fully remote for the fall. He had already planned to go back to New York, but because of that, it worked out a bit differently. Yeah. And we were going to try and do long distance. I don't think it would have worked out. But then he found out Ithaca was going online. He's like, why don't we just move in together? Yeah. And we had been dating for like two months. I was like, oh. Yeah, no. I, I kind of tricked her into I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to stay. And she was like, what? We drove back to Chicago. And then he was going to drop me off yeah. and go to New York. But... And then he was like, I'll just stay for like a couple oh. weeks or a month. And we'll hang out. And then he was like, yeah, so I'm just going to look at a few apartments yeah. around. I had my buddies ship all my stuff from Montana. <laughs> I called my buddies up. I was just like, hey, guys. um, Yeah, so how about you just, like, get a bunch of boxes and just, uh, I don't know, mail all my stuff. And when it's all over, Charlie and Elise are going to finally go out on the town as a couple. We we, we really like bust, busting it down on the dance floor. That's probably one of our yeah. favorite. We really like just a lot of crumping. And yeah, and you know, we just did that, and I think that's what we're gonna, we're just gonna be able to, just gonna go out and get a nice beer and a nice dinner and get a haircut. And I think that's what I'm looking forward to. And then human contact and interaction. But the pandemic is still going on, and we can't lose sight of that yet. WICB production director Vidanta Kauri and I have close connections with India. Vedant has spent a large part of his childhood in India, while I've spent most of my life, including the semester, over here. As the second wave of the pandemic ravages the country, the pandemic is anything but over here. Here's part of a story Vedant and I did, covering what can only be called the horrors of the second wave of the pandemic in India. The sound of ambulances coming in and out of my housing complex has become much more regular than ever before in the many years I've lived here. I see the numbers all over the news. Over 27,000 cases in one day in Delhi alone. Still, every time I hear one, my heart turns a little because I realize this may be someone I've met before. Maybe someone I ran into in an evening jog. Someone I went to school with 
hopefully not a friend or relative who's in that ambulance fighting for life right now. That's not something you get used to. I look at social media and every day I see someone posting in a desperate attempt to ask if anyone knows of a place where they might find an empty hospital bed, an oxygen concentrator, or a plasma donor. Prices of remdesivir, a drug used in COVID treatment, and oxygen concentrators have gone up to tens and even hundreds of thousands of rupees in some cases. A fact I've heard not just from the news, but also from people in my circles who attempted to buy it for their loved ones. Yet those who can afford it pay up hastily because money is not what's important anymore. The world is watching. That's how I would describe the coverage of India's latest COVID crisis with drone shots of cremations done on the streets and Indians fighting for their lives in congested hospitals. I've come across a lot of these photos and videos from India, oftentimes invasive and tone deaf to the loss of loved ones. For instance, I saw a video on Twitter where two sons were carrying their mother's corpse on a motorcycle because the ambulances were full. This video has almost 2 million views with thousands of retweets with many calling for its removal from the platform. I've called family members, many of whom live in COVID hotspots like New Delhi over the past few days, and one of them told me that they stopped watching the Indian news because it mostly shows photos and videos like the ones I've mentioned, which can be unsettling for families like mine and millions of others that have dealt with COVID cases and deaths. The losses the capital and several other Indian cities are seeing right now were unimaginable to most less than a month ago. Today, we have witnessed around 3,500 deaths in a single day all across India. And 50% uh, of these were from uh, Delhi, Punjab, and uh, Maharashtra. That's Dr. Amit Tomar. We'll get to him in a moment. Let's discuss our Indian connection first. Himadri and I are deeply intertwined with New Delhi. I lived there from 2005 until 2012, whereas Himadri has lived in the national capital region since 2001. Because of our history with the area, it is absolutely soul-crushing to see it in such a collapsing yet preventable COVID crisis. Himadri is living in New Delhi during this wave and even tested positive for COVID. It was a pretty anxious time, to be honest. At the same time, it's like every other person is positive. So even if I called a friend or relative to tell them we were positive, a lot of them would just say, oh, same. The COVID crisis in India has escalated to become the worst in the world. Tonight, Hamadri and I will attempt to answer some of the questions, fears, and concerns of Indian and non-Indian communities around the crisis in Delhi. morning i go to the hospital then we get into our ppe kits then we go to the patients and uh, we have a round uh, in morning and we go to the hospital and have a round of the patients and uh, after going into the uh, to the ppe kit we have to go to our wards and we have to stay there for for few hours four to five hours in the same uh, COVID ward. So we go to all the patients, uh, we uh, ask them their condition, uh, what are they doing, how are they doing, and how are they feeling. That's Dr. Ruksana Parveen, Chief Medical Officer at IDBP Hospital in New Delhi. Dr. Parveen claims to be an optimist and continues to love the work she does, but the exponential growth in cases has shaken even her hope. We see around 60 to 70 patients in a day, and out of which 50 patients become uh, COVID positive. So this is a worrisome picture uh, right now. Last year, when we used to see 70 to 80 patients, uh, about 10 to 15 um, patients uh, used to become COVID positive. But uh, this time, it's around 50 patients. So uh, quite grave situation nowadays. Hindustan Times, a local media outlet, reports that the capital saw a positivity rate of 31.76% on Thursday, 
which increased by nearly a 4% over a single day. And that is not accounting for the large number of cases that go unreported and the possible discrepancies in testing and reporting. The recent oxygen shortage in the country, which is particularly acute in Delhi, has only aggravated the problem, as hospitals around the city run on dangerously low oxygen levels and in many cases are even forced to deny entry to new patients because they don't have enough oxygen. So we are still are facing a lot of, lot of problems uh, getting the oxygen for the patients, which require it the most. So you feel very bad when a patient requiring oxygen it has to wait uh, for long, long and long, long, long queues. People are just standing there to get their oxygen. So it, it, the situation is quite, quite pathetic, I must Even a subject like this has not escaped politicization, as blame is thrown around as to who is responsible for this crisis. The central government claims that enough oxygen was provided to the Delhi government and was not distributed properly, while Delhi's government claims otherwise, and the courts seem to have become unsure middlemen themselves. But lives continue to be at stake, and many citizens continue to feel stranded as governments at the local, national and international level go on talking about measures that have simply not proved to be enough yet. Dr. Ruxana feels that one of the best things that the government is doing at this time is carrying on the vaccination drive, and she hopes that it will continue in full force. The government has uh, done a very good thing that uh, it has started vaccination quite earlier. So vaccination point, it is really the only thing which is going to prevent all of us is vaccination. She says that being a doctor at this time is very stressful, but at the same time, when you see your patients getting better and uh, they, uh, they, they are having a smile on their face, you feel relieved. At the same time, we are happy for the patients who are recovering and feel sad for the patients who can't make it, who can't. So it's a mixed reaction, it's mixed. but I feel proud to be a doctor. I really feel proud to be a doctor. For anyone who thinks they or someone they know has contracted COVID, Dr. Ruxana says that they should isolate themselves and consult a doctor immediately and avoid going to the hospital unless absolutely necessary. Consult your doctor telephonically or online unless it's impossible to do so. Dr. Ruxana says that one of the biggest reasons we saw this unexpected second wave was because people got lazy. They let their guards down along with their masks and forgot that COVID existed until it gave the country a terrible reminder. She says that the only way out of it now is to take COVID precautions very seriously. I request everybody, each and everybody, the life is, this life is very precious. So you must take care of yourself. Wear masks, sanitize each and everything, sanitization, wearing masks and social distance. These are three key words. We'll be fine. Just remember that what we have here is not all of what WICB News has to offer. We explored different journalists and stories in our new series about this, wrapped up Six Degrees, explored reopening in Ithaca in a special collaborative episode with WVBR's news department, and so much more. You can find these stories and more on WICB.org. We also had a great episode airing last week celebrating our outgoing seniors. As we go into the summer, let's hear one of the stories from that episode to take on nature and go to the beach with graduating senior Jessica Dresch. I'm standing on the boardwalk in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, a town that refers to itself as God's Square Mile. It's on the sign as you enter. There's a line of people along a makeshift fence in front of the remnants of a building that burnt down a couple years ago. If you were running or biking by, you'd probably just think people were staring at the ocean. This was a number of restaurants until it became a restaurant, sort of a food court thing. It was very popular. It burned two years ago, almost to the date that she showed up. So I'd be inclined to name her Phoenix. Phoenix. She arose from the ashes. Yeah. For three weeks, people have gathered on the end of this New Jersey boardwalk to catch a glimpse of a family of red foxes. 
for a town with houses as close together as you can reach your arm out. This is an event. For the most part, on-land wildlife around here consists of fat squirrels or seagulls. It's safe to say, the foxes have become the talk of the town. Even the local radio DJs talk about them on air. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Mm. I came up here, got off the train, like you need this too, but I got, <laughs> got off the plane wearing a little white dress, arm sleeveless. And my arms turned purple from the cold and I spent the entire winter on my butt. That's Charlotte. She lives in the town and has been coming to see the foxes every day. She told me it's so much fun being retired. There's absolutely no adult supervision. And she'll, she'll come up here, run across, cross the dune, cross the boardwalk down here, up the way, and then she'll look back at everybody from, from that little patch of woods. So on Saturday or Sunday, there's tons of long lenses here. I, I saw a guy with a $13,000 Sony lens the other day. She's down there. She starts to come this way. They all figure she's going to make the same trip. So all the long lenses go and get down because they're going to get her coming across the boardwalk. She knows where there's a hole here. So she shot straight down under the boardwalk and was over here laughing at them. Wow. So she played all the photographers. She did. And right before I can ask Charlotte another question, we see the fox. At least one of them. Here she is. Oh my god. Wow. Hi, Mama. Oh my god. So that's the mama. Yeah, the mama and one baby. Yeah, wow. They should come out and play. She looks like a cartoon. The mama fox, as Charlotte calls her, is the first to come out from the fortress or the old wooden floorboards. Trailing behind her, five pups or baby foxes come out to stretch and feed. They crowd under their mother's belly like little piglets. In the distance behind them, surfers walk along the beach, the sound of waves crashing. There's something magical about it, like a scene that's not really supposed to happen here, but it is anyways. We're just standing, whispering if we talk, and watching. I imagine it's like watching live golf right before the tee shot. Before the foxes, it was just the burnt-down beach cafeteria that sold everything from sushi to burritos. There have been a couple of um, really personal stories that people have told me talking, and I think she evokes that. Standing in front of the foxes, Charlotte met a man who told her he was adopted. He put an ad in the Jersey Journal newspaper, a paper Charlotte even used to work for, in hopes to find his birth mother. And actually, through someone at the hospital, was able to reconnect with his birth mother. And I believe it's seeing this fox that made him share that story. Red foxes, the foxes we're watching, have a lifespan of two to five years in the wild. Females deliver anywhere between one and 12 pups per litter. This fox in particular has six. They prefer to eat rodents, but eat birds as well. Charlotte told me she saw the pups nibbling on a seagull wing once. Both parents take care of the pups until the next fall, when they are left to forage and live on their own. As I'm nearing graduation, this feels personal. But where the foxes hunt to find a rabbit, the occasional possum, I'll be hunting for jobs. A less dangerous pursuit, but maybe more exhausting? It's calming, standing and watching the foxes trot around and sunbathe. It's like when a fuzzy baseball game is on in the background. There's not a feeling of what to do later or in an hour. You just watch because it's happening now. I've seen them over the last two weeks probably about seven different times. But it's very hit and miss. This is David. He loves taking pictures of wildlife. He grew up in the woods. He's wearing pants with a gaping hole at the knee. He explains he wears his bad clothes for this kind of stuff because of all the tick spray he puts on. I tested out Charlotte's theory if the foxes maybe do elicit some emotional response. And it wasn't long until David told me a story about how he came to be a grandfather. My wife and I moved down to Florida about 16, 17 years ago to take care of my mother and father. My daughter had been told that uh, she was never going to have any babies. She'd had two tubular pregnancies. And uh, mom and dad passed away. And one Saturday night, um, sitting on the couch with my wife watching TV and I look over and there's tears coming down on her face. I said, honey, what's the matter? She said, 
After all this time, I do realize I'm never going to be a grandmother. Two nights later, my daughter called us up, said she'd waited three months to be sure with the doctors and all, and she was pregnant. Moved back to New Jersey, and here I am. And like Charlotte pointed out, in a lot of ways, this fox is like a fairy tale. 60-some years of knowledge, I would have never expected foxes to be at the beach. There are going to be children who are going to remember that this was the year that the fox came to the beach. I don't know how much longer the foxes will be here, but just seeing them has been a respite from a stressful time in life right now. I imagine that's how most people feel, whether they come with a fancy camera or not. My entire life living in this small Methodist beach town, I've never seen a fox. Well, up until now. So there you go for new things in old places. And going forward, I'm hoping for a lot of that. For WICB News, I'm Jessica Dresch. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. This is my last episode as news director, and I want to sincerely thank everyone who has listened to Ithaca Now over this past year, and of course, thank every single one of the reporters, newscasters, and other contributors to WICB News that worked so hard between the pandemic and constant readjustments. And also, of course, the rest of the exec staff members of WICB. I couldn't have done it without any of them. This was the best job on campus I could have asked for, and I know that next year the station is going to be in capable hands. Himadri is so creative and is such a hard worker. I can't wait to hear what comes next. So without further ado, let's wrap this up. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past stories, Follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show would not happen without support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Sam Ives, Programming Director Lou Barron, and new Social Media Coordinator Gabrielle Topping. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Himadri Seth, with assistance from outgoing News Director Jay Bradley, and this week's correspondents, Bridget Bright, Madeline Lorraine, Vedant Akari, Michael Memis, and Jessica Dresch. Also, a special thanks to all of our graduating seniors who have contributed to WICB and VIC News. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundeff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. That's it for Ithaca Now this Sunday. We will be back this summer with more. Tune in next Sunday for an episode of our show about this followed by a special series focused on the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. I'm Jay Bradley. And I'm Himadri Seth. And thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.